So uh, last weekend, I was in Southern California with my kids, with my family, doing a quick vacation, and knowing that the first Sunday back, um, I was going to be getting... This morning really isn't a typical sermon. It's more of a church update, and we're celebrating the financial campaign that's kind of coming to an end. And So I was just kind of reflecting on what's happening in our church and just general things like that, kind of getting ready. And one of the mornings that I got up, opened my laptop, had a cup of coffee, just looking at some sports stuff or something, one of the news feeds that came up... On, on, the, on my page, the homepage, caught my attention. And it was titled, Images of Abandoned Churches Around the World. Really caught my attention. So you have some like this, Rocky Valley Church in Dooley, Montana, deserted 30 years ago. You see it's leaning, you know, they've been, no one's been there for a while. You've got St. Nicholas Cathedral in Kazlan, Russia, abandoned when a hydroelectric plant was built across the Volga River, that's the water. And they had image after image. So they had like Tri Tim Church in Vietnam on the top left, Postoy Church in Venezuela, uh, Whitby Abbey in England, City Methodist Church in Gary, Indiana, and on and on and on. All these churches that had been historic and important churches in their communities for years that, that the church was in the building was just abandoned. And as I looked through, I said, well, yeah, well, wait a minute, though. There's a difference between an abandoned church and a deceased church. In many of the cases of the stories behind these images, it was, you know, a natural disaster or a climate change or the, the economy of the town had completely changed. And so that's why the, the building was abandoned. So an abandoned church is very different than a deceased church. I don't know if you know these statistics, but you probably should be aware of them. Let's put them on the screen. Um, Every day in the United States of America, 28 churches close their doors. That is over 10,400 churches every single year. Now, that should catch our attention. That should make us wonder because that basically the, the, the business we're in, the faith business, where we're trying to attract people to Jesus and point them to God and ground them in their faith. The, what, what is happening in America is we are going in the opposite direction of what this book says we should be doing. So we should be paying attention and trying to figure out what, what's going on. You know, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when someone passes away, um, an autopsy is performed because we're not sure why they passed away and sometimes the family members know what's going on and sometimes you discover some interesting things about why they passed away that influences the family and genetics and things like that. And so one of the things that church experts have done, a lot smarter than I have than I am, is that they have looked at these numbers and these looked at these churches and asked the question, why? Why did they die? It's very important to do an autopsy on these churches that should be living but are now dead and ask, why did they die? And then, then, then essentially, we do the opposite. Essentially, all the studies are showing, showing three primary things. I, I want to share them with you before I get into the thrust of this morning's message. Three reasons why churches die. Number one, they're not strategic enough. In other words, they play it safe. They're not willing to risk. They're content with the today. They keep looking to the past instead of looking to the future. And by far the number one reason when it comes to strategy is they're absolutely unwilling to make necessary changes. Why do we want to change? We like it the way it is. We've never done it that way. It's uncomfortable to change. Let's just keep it the way it is. And in choosing not to change for strategic reasons, you don't change because you want to be cool. That's a bad reason to change. You change because you want to be more effective. But because they don't change... Sometimes they get in trouble. I have two more images on the screen for you. Two churches that were the most influential churches in their country, arguably, for a while. One was Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, who was pastored, it was pastored by Charles Spurgeon. 
At the time, before there were such a thing as mega churches, they had 6,000 plus people in attendance every week. They started a school to train pastors. They had a membership of 14,692. But a few years back, I know of a pastor that visited this church and he counted 87 people in church and listened as the pastor bemoaned how they couldn't reach their community. They went from 6,000 on a Sunday morning to less than 100. Then, of course, you have Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove. Southern California, made famous by Pastor Robert Schuler in the Hour of Power TV show, not necessarily on the West Coast, but the rest of the country. They would watch the Hour of Power at church, at home, before they would go to their own church. It was an incredibly successful and very famous church. But then in 2010, they declared bankruptcy, closed the doors, and sold the property. And in both cases, when church experts look at these churches, they both identify the same reason why they declined and died. They were unwilling to make strategic changes. They were unwilling to make a differentiation between you never change the message. If I or anyone else stands on this stage and comes close to changing the message, you have my permission to tackle them. Okay? Because this is Richmond. That's how we roll in Richmond. Right? You don't change the message. But I'm not talking about changing the message. I'm talking about changing the methodology. If we are doing church the same way a year from now, five years from now, as we're doing today, we're in trouble. You change not to be cool, but because the world and our communities are changing, and you have to use new methods so that they understand the message. You have, for example, Crystal Cathedral. The executive pastor for Crystal Cathedral has said, the reason we died, do you know what he said? We were unwilling to change the music. They were made famous by their famous organ, their huge organ. He said, one day we woke up, we looked out, and all we saw was gray and white hair, and we knew we were in trouble, and they couldn't turn it around. Can I tell you something about change? It's never comfortable. It's never comfortable. The best change, strategic change, is more often very uncomfortable. And what I'm asking you to do is for the sake of being effective in what we're supposed to be doing, every once in a while you need to be willing to be uncomfortable. That's the whole point. We're concluding this financial campaign we've been working on for three years and raising money for a facility. And the, the, the verse that we've been holding on to is Joshua chapter 1-9. And here's what it says. God says, haven't I ordered you? Be strong, be bold. Honestly, that's what you need to make strategic change. You need to have courage and you need to be bold. And you need to say, you know, everyone, I'm going to try it. I'm going to swing for the fences, even though every once in a while you strike out. It's okay. But swing away. The second reason some churches die is they're not evangelistic enough. So you have on the screen what is known as the Great Commission. Whether you're a church in Richmond, California, or Barcelona, Spain, or India, or Bangladesh, or Thailand, wherever you are, it's the same purpose. Every church should be doing and trying to exist for the same reason. We are here to help people grow in Christ. That's called discipleship. And we are here to bring people to Christ. That's called evangelism. Here's the problem. That churches mainly have people who have already come to Christ. So they're on this side of the stage. So when all of us get on committees and church boards and staff, we are all speaking from our perspective. So without even intending to, we give the resources to our ministries and to take care of us and to bless us and to help us. We don't have, group, someone, we don't have someone that's unsaved on committees that's speaking for the people who aren't here. 
We don't have an unsafe person on the board that speaks for the people that aren't here. We don't have unsafe people that are on our staff that speak for the people. Well, there's a couple that I'm concerned about, but that's a different issue. And what you have to intentionally do is you have to ask yourself the question, not what would help me, but you have to ask the question is what would help them that aren't even here yet? And basically you have to say, what do I got to do to create an environment that would make them feel comfortable? We just had it happen. You do know some people would get upset because we played a, quote, secular song in church. We just did it just 10 minutes ago, right? Had nothing to do with Jesus. You're, you're right. But you don't want to know one of the reasons we do it. Half of you were singing louder for that song than the first three songs. I don't know. I ain't caught you. But it's because the average person that has never been in church, they show up and they're like, I know that song. It's not just for you. It's for them. We have to create an environment they feel comfortable. It happened to me about a month ago. It gave me the assurance that we're doing a decent job here. After the sermon, I walk out through there. I get a little bit of water, and then I head to the back, and you'll see me back there. I'm just kind of hanging out if you want to say something to me. And, and after, during the closing song, during the offering song, um, there was a couple, couple people leave, and that's fine. And there was this one guy that walked out, and he looked real tough. And he was, he was an hombre, man. He was, he was built and, you know, and... And, 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 and then he walked by me. I was outside. And then he stopped. He looked at me. He goes, hey, are you the guy that was up front talking? And I thought, I wanted to say, depends. <laughs> depends if you liked it or not. <laughs> and I go, yeah, it was me. And he goes, I want to say something to you. Well, I, I can't literally say what he said, but I can give you an idea of what he said. Let me push, put it on the screen. He said this. Well, you talk some really good. That's what he said. And I was like, just keep that little down. We got Christian people around here are going to lose their minds, you know. <laughs> but I had to smile. I go, well, I can't put that on the website as a, as a testimonial, but uh, it made me smile. And here's why. Here's why it did. It made me realize we have people from different stages of life and different parts in their journey that are willing to show up here and feel half comfortable. I get it. We're, it. Being in an environment that's not normal for you, and I hope these kind of people feel comfortable coming and keep showing up again. We have to be about the business of leaving the 99 occasionally to go find the one that's lost. And I'm using that story because I know a lot of you Christians know exactly what I'm talking about. We're not strategic enough. We're not evangelistic enough. And three, we're not health conscious enough. You know, if you've had young kids, you know what happens. They go through growth spurts, but at some point in time, you get to the point and you just kind of expect them to keep growing. And if they stop growing, that's when you get concerned. If they stop growing, you can basically conclude something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to take them in because they should still keep growing. And that's kind of what should happen. That's the approach I take as pastor. This, This thing called church should keep growing. And when it stops growing, something's wrong. What's wrong? What's not as healthy as needs to be? That's the approach that I take. Now, I think some of us, we're so close to it. We've been here for so long, we don't realize what we got. I'm not saying we're perfect, but I do think we're heading in the right direction. And most of the people that come from the outside that are experts when it comes to church are telling us just that. So, for example, you have the president of William Jessup, who's one of the fastest growing universities on the West Coast. He's come and spoke here a couple times, and he wrote me this email. Here's what he said about us. Bay Bay Hills does all the basics right. The parking, the lobby, the children, the music, the teaching, the hospitality. However, 
What sticks with me every time I'm at Bay Hills is not those tactical things. What sticks with me is the genuine sense that people at Bay Hills have met Jesus, are walking with Jesus, and that Jesus and his love are, quote, in the house. I love that Bay Hills looks like the surrounding community. It looks like heaven. I leave Bay Hills filled up and encouraged. And that's what we want. I think, again, we're so close to it, and I know I get in the habit of identifying what's the, what needs to change, what we need to do better. And sometimes I and we need to put on some lenses and realize all the good things we are doing. Now, this is especially significant and important in the context of what I keep bringing up. It's this Barna report. The Barna report, he's a statistician, and he has said this. Let's put it on the screen. He's identified our community as the hardest community in the entire country to do church. He said there's no other community in the entire country that is more unchurched and more de-churched than our Bay Area. Now, why is that say? It's you know what? I grew up go. I, I, Sandy and I met in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You could just open up a church and 300 people will show up just because. Doesn't matter what you're doing. That happens in Southern California, Texas, the Bible Belt, all over. Not here. Here, it's exactly the opposite. Churches are getting chewed up, spit out, and dying. And it's because of what you see on the screen. And why do I keep bringing this up? Because when you're on the front lines, you always got to be alert. You got to understand where you're serving and where you're living. We're not living in Disneyland Christianity. It's the front lines, which makes what we're doing all the more important and significant. I want to spend the rest of my 20 minutes talking to you about what, is, what makes a church healthy. You know what I want for us? I want a year from now for us to be able to say we are healthier a year from now than we are today. Why wouldn't we want anything different? And I'm going to give you a list of 10 health characteristics. It's my job. It's what I have all the staff do. It's what we we talk about as a board. But as I give you the 10 characteristics, what I want you to do is I want you to be asking, what can you do to be a little bit more healthy? Because if you're a little bit more healthy, it means we're a little bit more healthy. Don't be showing up at the end of the service, giving me a list of things you want me to do. Because I will give it right back to you. I already have a list. You be looking for your list. Does that make sense? I'm going to go through some of them rather quickly. Number one, strong, healthy churches are churches that are committed to prayer. They're passionate about prayer. It's churches that understand we don't do it in our strength and in our power, but we lean into God and into his power, and into his wisdom. And prayer isn't just lip service. You actually do it. You actually do it. Some of us, how many of you were here when we had the prayer service, uh, the healing service? A lot of people like that, right? People, oh, pastor, we should do it again. And we will do it again. I thought it turned out really good for our first time. But don't be for one moment thinking that's the only thing we should do when it comes to this category. Let's just start with you. Do you think you could spend an extra two minutes every day praying and pray for your church? Two minutes, 120 seconds. Do you think if we all did that, that would make our church better and healthier? Do you think that would make our church better and healthier? There was like three people that thought the first time I asked that question. We got to have the, the courage to go to that prayer room if we have needs. I want our small groups to stop just closing in prayer and give a chunk of their time to prayer. I want to stop begging people to show up at 8 a.m. to walk around this building with the prayer team and pray for everything that's happening. You say, well, I didn't know we did that. Well, now you do. And I don't want to beg people to show up. Well, 8 8 o'clock in the morning is a little early. I know it is. Get your butt here anywhere. We want to pray for what's going on. 
I'm not asking you to do it every Sunday. I'm asking you to do it once every 10 weeks. So here's my point. It's not hard. Pray just a little more. Because when you do that, we're healthier. Right? Before you call the pastor with your problems, talk to God with your problems, and then talk to your small group leader, your pastor, whoever. Second characteristic is churches that are healthy have a heart for those that are broken. They have compassion for those that are broken. In John chapter 11, everyone loves talking about John eleven thirty three. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? I memorized the verse. Jesus wept. There you go. You memorized the verse, right? Why, did, why was he crying in that passage, by the way? He cried because one of his best friends died. And it kind of reveals for us, that's why you have emotions and I have emotions because we're made in the image of God and we reflect who he is and he has emotions. But what's interesting is we don't talk about some of the other verses that he cries. So you have a passage in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus and the disciples are walking and coming upon Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem and he sees the people of Jerusalem. And it breaks him. And he weeps. And the question is, why? What did he see that caused our Savior to cry? And the answer is he saw people that were broken. Broken spiritually, broken relationally, broken economically. Do you realize there are over 2,000 verses in the New Testament that talk about the poor, the widows, and the orphans? How did we miss those verses? Can I ask you a question? Does your heart break for the things that break the heart of God? You see, we're really good at identifying the problem. We're really good at explaining practically why they're poor. We're really good at explaining politically why they're poor. I don't care about politics this morning. I care about theology. I could care less what the government could or should do. I want to talk to you about what the church is required to do. And it starts with, I care. I care. Now, I get it. Sometimes there are so many needs, you don't know where to start, and you get paralyzed. Pick one. Pick one thing. Pick one person. On your, in your neighborhood, a ministry, at work, pick one person and show compassion. Why? Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to notice people that are broken and hurting and do something about it. The third characteristic of healthy churches are loving relationships. Now, some people are going to call this community. Some people are going to call this fellowship. The simple way we would, we, it's friendships. It's healthy friendships. And by friendships, I don't just mean we hang out together and go bowling or whatever. That's all fun. It, healthy friendships, you've got to take it to a different level at some point, right? Where there's accountability and there's, uh, there's encouragement and so on and so forth, right? And it, you have to understand why this is so significant, Jesus says, you want to know how the world is going to know that you're genuinely my disciples? You want to know how he, the world knows the people you work with, your family members that aren't interested in church and God? You want to know what they think of your faith? It's based upon one thing. They'll know, he says, if you're genuinely my disciples, notice what he says on the screen, if you go to church every Sunday. Uh, no, that's not what he said. If you put a lot in the offering. Nope, didn't say that either. If you serve, didn't say that. If you're in small group, doesn't say that. All those things are important. But they're not the condition for the world noticing and believing that your faith is genuine. You want to know when people know that your love, your faith is genuine? When you love the people around you. When you have healthy relationships, people amongst you. 
It's how we interrelate with one another that sends a message to the world that there's something genuine about this book and about our faith. So how are we doing with our relationships? Are you building them? Are you working through conflict? Are you kind? Are you respectful to people even if you don't get along with them? That's called church. And how you do that will reflect Jesus to them one way or the other. Many of you know I grew up in Spain. My parents are still there doing ministry. Just a couple months ago, they were very close uh, to the church that housed this painting. Let's put it up there. The painting was, was uh, painted by Elias Martinez in 1930. It is displayed at the Mercy Church in Borja, Spain. Um, but with a lot of these older churches, you know, they're very cold, they're very damp. And, and even though it's a fairly recent painting, it, in, in just not that many, year, many years, was damaged. And, and this is what happened. Let's, let me show you. The, the, the color started to fade, and, and some water got on it and, it, and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. So the church decided, well, you know, we've got to fix this up. We've got we to restore this. Uh, the, the mistake they made is that they chose not to hire a professional to do that. And instead, there was a lady in the church that said, I'm really good at painting. Maybe I could do something about it, right? And that was kind of a mistake. Uh, <laughs> the New York Times was made aware of what happened here. Here's what the New York Times said of the restoration project. It is probably the worst art restoration, pro- art restoration project of all time. And this is what the lady came up with, and this is how she fixed it. Let me show you. You don't know whether to cry or to laugh, right? I sure hope they sent her to another church. You're out. Out! (laughs) I do have a question for you. I do have a question for you. When people observe how you treat other people, when people observe the relationships that you have with other, which Jesus do they see? Do they see the authentic Jesus of the Bible that has transforming power to change who you are from the inside out? Or do they see something that is distorted? Because you see, it's all based upon how you're treating the people next to you. Strong, healthy churches have loving, healthy relationships. Fourth characteristic is that strong churches have inspiring worship services. This is the one that everyone gets. Good churches have good services, right? And it's what we focus on, and that's fine. But don't forget, there's ten characteristics. Don't get carried away with just the one. There's ten. Now, there's different things that we're trying, and we put a lot of effort into Sunday morning because it's the one time we're all together. Uh, but this is July and August. This is the time when a lot of people are on vacation, and I'm bumping into some of you that are just coming back, and I was gone. And, but here's what, if everything is, is true to what has happened the last five years, at the end of August, beginning of September, heading into the fall, everybody will come back again. This service will be full. Then, in fact, we had a situation three, four months ago where in this service we set up all the chairs and ran out of chairs. No more chairs, right? No more, no more, you know, there's a couple of empty seats here and there. No more chairs. Now, that's a blessing. But it's a problem when you have people come in and all the chairs are set up and your only option is, well, sit on that guy's lap. That doesn't go over that well. <laughs> so you have to come up with options, right? So we're trying. We're trying to come up with options. And... We are going to be launching something in October and November as a trial and see how it works and hope it catches on. It might catch some of you by surprise, but we've done our research. We are going to start a Thursday night service that is identical to Sunday morning. Now, let me tell you why. We've done our research, and Thursday night is the number one 
time that most unbelievers prefer to go to church. I don't know, Friday night, Saturday night, they're out doing their thing, partying, having a good time. They don't like coming Sunday morning. It's too churchy. But Thursday night, I'll go Thursday night, sure. Feels like I'm going to the club. It's not going to the club, but yeah, we'll get you in and, you know, we got you, you know. (laughs) So second of all is that, um, you know, you got NFL fans. I want to stay home and watch the game or I want to go to a game. You can come Thursday night. I'm going away on vacation for the weekend. Fine, go away. You can come Thursday night. How many of us have had kids that have travel ball? And every once in a while, they have a game on Sunday morning, and now you're stuck. What do I do? You know, I want them to play, but I want to go to church. Come on Thursday night and take them to the game. But by far, the number one reason that has motivated us is going to come to you from a short video that I want you to watch. Let's watch it. My name is Lake Herbert, and I... (laughs) And I've been at this church. Okay, let's start it all over again. Start it all over again. I've been attending the Hills for approximately 15 plus years now. And unfortunately, lately, I haven't had the ability to come to church often because I started working for a job where I have to work shift work, work nights and weekends. And so Sunday services are really hard to get to. And so I'm extremely excited about the opportunity for us to have a Thursday night service. I think it'll be really good for growing our population and congregation. And we have the ability for people like me to come to church and still be involved. The reason Lake knew about it is because his dad, not only is he a good friend of mine, but he's on the board. We've been talking about this while. So he he heard kind of whispers that this was happening. 20% of our American population, up to 20%, have Sunday morning work responsibilities occasionally. That means almost one-fifth of the people that we're trying to reach don't even have the option to come because all we have is church on Sunday morning. Churches all over the country are canceling their Saturday night service, which, by the way, the one thing about Saturday night service is it kills the staff. They never have any more family time. Well, we'll give you Tuesday and Wednesday off. doesn't matter. My kids are in school. So they're canceling Saturday, starting Thursday, and it's just going game. So we're going to try it. We're going to try it for eight weeks. Why only eight weeks? We do not have the capacity right now to keep pulling it off. Main reason is we don't have enough worship team members, enough musicians. So if, you have, if you're good at that, let us know because we need that. That's the number one reason. So we're going to observe it for eight weeks. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask 100 of you to commit to Thursday night and just see how it goes. I'm going to ask all of you to show up once. Just once and just check it out. You know what I think is going to happen? I think more of you than realize are going to go on Thursday night and you're going to go, I kind of like this. Sleep in on Sunday morning. (laughs) You know? And we're just going to, you know what? We're going to try. You know, worst case thing that happens is we do it for eight weeks and it doesn't work and we do something else. The other thing we want to do is Sunday, 11 a.m. service, hopefully sometime next year. And it's primarily to compete with this service. Because this is our glut service. And what we're going to do is we're going to have that 11 o'clock service at our other campus five minutes away. Same teacher, so I'll just be going back and forth. How many of you went to the other campus for Easter? Let me see your hands. You know what was amazing about so many of the people I talked to? A lot of you said, I kind of like this. It's a little more cozy. It's a little more intimate. It's a smaller setting. And we're just going to, I'm going to beg 100 of you, 150 of you to, that normally come to this service and say, go to that service. So we, because the guests, the brand new people will come here. 
So this is what we're trying when it comes to services. We're putting a lot of energy and resources into. The fifth characteristic of healthy churches is fruitful evangelism. Notice not just evangelism. Well, we had an evangelism event. I could care less. I want to know how many people came to Christ. That's the issue. Well, God all is interested in, God's only interested in us being faithful. Baloney. He also wants you to be fruitful. They both matter. By the way, you've heard it said, we have four priority ministries in the church. The, the worship service, because this is the one time we all get together. Small groups, because it's relationships, friendships, and discipleship. And then children and kids, or, or children and youth, sorry. Question, why are children and youth part of our four priority ministries? What do you think? You know, you know it's interesting. I kind of heard it. I heard it both first and second service. I heard it kind of a little mumbling here. I always hear people go, well, why are youth and kids important? They're the church of the future. Don't, don't say that. I'll put you in a headlock. I heard the amen. That's all right. I love you anyway. They are the church of the future, but they are the church of today. They're just a lot shorter than we are, and they put hardly anything in offering, which is un- it's unacceptable. I know they have more money, you know. <laughs> You, you do realize kids' ministry and youth ministry is super expensive. Super expensive. There's nothing more expensive in the church than kids' ministry. Why do we do it? Why do we say of all the ministries we have, the two of the four most important are kids and youth? Here's why. Look at the screen. Look at the category. The category is this. If we say we're interested in reaching people for Christ, statistics tell us still to this day that 75% of people come to Christ before the age of 17. So if we say we're interested in evangelism, we best invest as much resources as we can in the group of people that are most receptive to the gospel message. And they're people under the age of 17, teenagers and kids. One of the most interesting and best conversations I had with someone about 15 years ago, they came to this church and and I asked them, why did you decide Bay Hills is your church? And they said, kids ministry. Now why that surprised me is because they were in their 60s. And I said, well, you don't have any kids. They're all grown. Yep. You know, because a lot of times people that have kids want their kids' ministry to be strong, is my point. Well, are your grandkids here? No. Well, why did you choose Bay Hills? Because kids' ministry, when you have nothing really to do with kids' ministry. And they said this, because we know that the energy and resources a church spends on its kids' ministry speaks to the heart of the church and what really matters. And it gave me shivers. You know what? Even if you don't have kids, I want you to care about kids' ministry. Even if you don't have teenagers, I want you to care about our youth ministry. Why? Because it's that. We get no benefit from it. Here's what's going to happen. Hopefully they get saved, but then they eventually move, get married, go off to college, never come back, forget about Pastor Dave, right? We don't get any. (laughs) Bay Hills doesn't win, but the kingdom wins, and that's why it's so important. The sixth characteristic is intentional discipleship. Intentional. I'm just curious, how many of you have gone to one of the discipleship classes? Let me see your hands. I'm hoping every time we ask that, more and more hands go up. Um, I, I know that we're onto something. I've had two people from outside the church say to me, David, you better copyright this. You better publish it because if you don't, someone's going to steal it and do it. I know we're onto something. We still have some tweaks to make. Uh, but it's so important. I once again, just like last year, am taking the entire month of August as a study month to keep working on this. It's that important because I'm not just interested on a crowd on Sunday morning. I'm interested on, on, on creating depth Monday through Saturday. 
and this is part of it. Now, honestly, while I want you to go, I don't care what you do. Here's what I care. What are you going to do to take your next step closer to Jesus? You figure it out. And I know how the Holy Spirit is. He whispered in some of your ears, you already know what you got to do. Do it. Be intentional about taking your next step closer to Jesus. Be a more committed disciple of Jesus Christ. The seventh characteristic is, it doesn't sound that fancy or that sexy, but it's effective organizational systems, right? Why? Because good, effective businesses, companies, and churches are organized. They're organized. What you see on the, tr- uh, on the screen, you could see on almost any business book, it's basically a, a growth curve or a curve reflecting what almost any organization, any medical institution, any educational institution, and any church eventually goes through. It has seven stages, Stage one, new initiatives, you start something. Growth and fun, stage two, that's, that's fun, you know, momentum and everything happened. White water, things slow down just a little bit, they become a little cumbersome because they become complex. Then you have mountaintop, you know what that is, it's the pinnacle. Things are going right, you don't even know what's happening, great things are happening, you're making sales, you can't even figure out why. But then there's three other stages that you got to be careful of. The treadmill stage. You know what a treadmill is. You're running or you're walking on a treadmill, and it's great for exercise. But have you ever noticed a company or a church that's on a treadmill? There's a lot of movement, but they're not going forward. And a lot of churches get stuck. It's called maintenance mode. Eventually, that goes to survival mode. And you know, you can be in survival mode for a long time. I know churches that have been 50 people, and they hold on for years. Same 50 people. And then eventually... It heads to hospice. And you know what that is. You're just making it comfortable until the inevitable death. I got a question for you. Do you know of a church or have ever been part of a church there at these different stages? It's no fun. I just had a good pastor friend of mine call me and and tell me three months from now we're closing the doors on the church. And he is now transitioning his church into hospice stage essentially. Now, here's what business leaders and entrepreneurs say. This, this particular graph comes from a, a British ec- economist and entrepreneur. He combined church and, and business world. It's very interesting. He says, you know, the first three are inevitable. Every organization and church goes through the first three phases, but the last three are optional. You don't have to do the last three. And here's the key. You've got to keep changing the curve. You've got to keep going back to the beginning, new initiatives, change things, ide- identify things that are broken and fix them. That's the key. But to do that, you've got to get more organized and systematized. And that's why I mention it. We are right now in this stage that we're getting bigger and bigger. And, got it. and honestly, as we get bigger, we have to get more organized. We're in the white water essentially stage where things are getting more complex and cumbersome. And we got to get nimble again, and a lot of times that's just systems. The next characteristic is, uh, is, is a dealing with leadership. It's effective and empowering leadership, whether that's volunteer leadership or future leadership, people that can contribute, or staff leadership. Sometimes you ask people to give so much time or because of their calling and because of their, and their, their gifting, we, we ask them to, to do more, and, and so you, you, you pay them to be part of the team and the staff. Someone said, you know, I don't know if everybody knows the staff. So we thought we'd just kind of give you an idea of who they are. The full-time staff, you should recognize these folks, senior pastor, and then you got Pablo, worship pastor. Nate is operations and kids. Brigitte is operations and church administrator. And Dave, who did the game, is discipleship and evangelism. But we have all these other part-time staff. Let me show you. So we've got Darcy and women's ministry. The next three are all kids. Marissa, Josh, and Gabby. We got Chris doing small groups. We got Babette 
doing the organization of our discipleship and growth track. We got Hannah in the office. We got Megan, who's working with social media and website stuff. We also have two members we just added, but they're not on the website. There they are, Wesley and Andrea, yeah. Now, they have been on staff for three weeks. Uh, One concern is that they've been on staff for three weeks, and they've already missed one Sunday. I know, well, they didn't skip it. They got married and went on their honeymoon. But I still, I'm putting on a probation. I think their commitment to Jesus is a little lacking. But uh, Wesley's going to be helping us with worship. Andrea's helping us with kids' ministry. Now, feels like, sounds like we got a lot of staff. Well, be careful. I've shared this ratio with you before, and it's worth pointing out. The staff to attendance ratio. National average, when you look at churches around the country, they have one full-time equivalent staff member, right? So that could be a combination of two or three part-time. One full-time staff member for every 57 people that are going to church. Bay Hill's ratio is 1 to 151. So if you've ever noticed or had the sense that the staff is running around and they're a little harried, that's why. Does that make sense? Now, we are trying to rectify this. We're trying to fix this. We're trying to hire new people. We have not posted all these positions because we don't have all the job descriptions, but right now, we're trying to hire five different positions. Let me show you what they are. You've got executive pastor, full-time, youth pastor, small groups pastor, communication director, facility director, and very soon, accounting or business will also be on there. Now, we do have some challenges. One of the things that the board would like We're finding it very challenging, but we would like to add diversity to our staff, but that adds a new component that makes it even more challenging to find people. We want to try and reflect who our community is, but that adds challenge, right? And at some point in time, you're looking, looking, looking. If you can't keep looking, you have to kind of pull the trigger and go in a new direction, but we're trying. The other thing is this. We we have contracted a search firm that is looking all around the country to help us, especially with the three full-time positions. And we just had the key person that's working for us. And two weeks ago, this is what they said. You know, we have very competent people that would work great at their church. And then they said this. The problem is none of them want to go to a church in Richmond, California. That's what he said. Now, the question is why? Think about it for a second. Why? And I think you know the answer. It's very expensive to live here. We know that, right? Second of all, it's just too hard to do ministry here. Here's, they don't say it quite like that. Here's the, the kind of people we need have the competency to serve at a church of three to 6,000. Why? Because it's so hard to do ministry here. So they would just much prefer to go to a bigger church in a much easier area than come to the front lines. I get it, right? It, it's too expensive. It's too hard to do ministry. And then they Google Richmond, right? And what do they discover? They, they see the crime rate or what they perceive, and they think we're all packing, coming to church or something. I don't know what's going on, right? And whether it's right or wrong, that's why people are going, I don't think so. I think I'm going to go to Georgia or where. I don't care. If you're from Georgia, I'm not against Georgia, but, you know, I'm in Richmond. Here's my point. One, be praying for the staff and give them a little grace. Because when things are slipping through the cracks, I'm telling you why. It's 1 to 151. Two, be praying because we need those people. We want those people, okay? Now, in the meantime, here's how you can help. Nine, the ninth characteristic is gift-based ministry. See, at some point in time, you don't just keep writing checks and hiring people. Strong churches encourage and challenge the people that are already here to do something and participate in the life of the church. That's you. That's biblical, right? That's how church should work. 
For every one staff member, we got about 150 volunteers working. That's how it should work. Today, I saw some of you come in and you were going for the name tags. No name tags today. Why? Because we have clipboards over there. And we're encouraging those of you who are not serving to go back there and check out a ministry that maybe you could serve at. And the ones we need the most help. It's not going to surprise you. Kids ministry, youth ministry, and worship. Right? Now, if you can't sing, don't sign up, please. You know? Well, I have a passion for worship. Well, then have the passion there, right? And we'll let other people... <laughs> Sounded bad. I'm sorry. Right? But you get my point. It's gift-based ministry. Here's my... You, have a, so you are great at at least one thing. That's what Scripture says. Identify that one thing and find a niche because we need you. I, you know, I just bumped into an article about a church that became famous, Faith Community Church in Florida. They were famous for the letter that they sent their members. They did a study on the membership, basically on the people that go to church. And they, they found out that 40 to 50% of their current people weren't serving anywhere. Oh, they kept showing up on Sunday, but they weren't serving. And about a quarter of their people weren't giving. And so the pastor sent everybody a letter. And here's what he said. He said this. He said, uh, either get involved and participate in the life of the church or go find another church to worship at. That's what he said. He was having a bad day, I think. <laughs> Poor guy. It's a little aggressive, don't you think? But it's kind of true. Do you realize this book gives you absolutely no permission to just sit and soak? None whatsoever. Oh, no, I know there are seasons of time and, you know, kids, and at some point I got this amount of time. Or that. I get it. But the minute you decide that this is your home church, this book says you don't have an excuse. And furthermore, we're not as strong or as healthy as we could be because you're sitting in the stands. So I'm not upset. I'm just saying I want us to win more Super Bowls for Jesus, so do your part. That's all I'm saying. Figure out what it is and do something, okay? The last one, and really why we inserted this on Sunday morning, is thriving stewardship. Churches that are effective and strong are doing well financially, okay? We've been having this three-year campaign trying to raise money for a building, and we're still trying to figure that out. And what We've grown so much that what we were going to do, we're trying to rethink that a little bit. And, and so um, every single time we've done these different campaigns, there's an article that I've read that, that speaks to me. And it's a, it's, a, it's a story about a dad. And the dad says, he basically asks this question, have you noticed how expensive it is to have kids? It's expensive. And it starts when you, t- when you take them to the hospital, when, when they're born in the hospital. You got to pay that bill. And then you take them home and you got to pay for diapers and pay for formula and pay for clothes. And then they run out of those clothes because they grow and you got to get new clothes. And then they go to school and you got to get tennis shoes and you got to get school clothes. And you got to get books. And then they want to play baseball and you got to buy a mitt. They don't like baseball. They want to play soccer. Now you got to get shin guards. And then they want to play piano. No, I don't want to. I want to play guitar. And then they go to college and they want to change their majors and it's back and forth. You got to buy them a car and, and you spend it all this money on kids, right? And then the story gets real sad, and he says, I spent all this money on my son until the day that he died, and then I stopped spending money. And he says this, surprisingly, the death of my son taught me a lesson about church. Death is cheap. Death can be sustained without expense. It is living that is costly. It is growth that is expensive. And that is why I will always belong to a church that needs money. A living, growing, thriving church will always require the continual, consistent, and conscientious support of its congregation. 
You want to know when we're in deep trouble? If I ever stand before you and say this, we're fine, don't need any money. In fact, we're skipping offering, we'll see you next week. If I ever say that or come close to saying that, you know we're in deep trouble. Do you know why? Because ministry costs money. Programs cost money. Kids ministry, youth ministry, worship ministry cost money. I just got an email saying, you know what? Our soundboard just died. Did some, did some of you hear it even this morning? We're having trouble. And you can't go to the local flea market and buy a soundboard. Well, you can, but it won't be as inspiring a worship as you want it to be. You know what I mean? All I'm saying, it costs money to hire staff. Growing churches require more finances. Now, let me just say this at this point, because every once in a while I hear it. I don't think I've ever said this on, on a Sunday morning, but now's the time I say it. Every once in a while, I hear someone go, well, oh, the church, all they're interested in is my money. That's just not true. I, I, call, I, I call you out. This is what you're really doing. You're making up an excuse why you don't want to go to church. Oh, maybe we could say it just a little bit better. I get you. But the longer you're here, you know that's not my heart and the leadership's heart here. We're wanting to grow this ministry. And sometimes that requires, many times that requires resources. So whether it's this church or another church, that's what you're going to notice. So my challenge to some of you is maybe that's how you get healthier and how we get healthier. Get more consistent in this area. I'm incredibly proud of what we did as a church with the campaign. Right? And now we have to figure out how we can invest it and what are we going to do facility-wise. Remember how I started this sermon. I'm way over. But here's what I want to ask you. Here's the summary slide. I asked you this question. What are you going to do to be a little healthier? What are you going to do to be a little stronger? Is it prayer, compassion, relationships, worship, evangelism, discipleship, systems, leadership, ministry, or stewardship? Because one little thing you do to become healthier as an individual makes us healthier as a church. What are you going to do? Let's be healthier a year from now than we are today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. We realize we're not the perfect church. We realize that we got problems. Help us be honest about our problems and our warts and the things we got to fix but also help us acknowledge the blessing that is our church and what you've done in and through us. We don't want to take that for granted. Father, help us be stronger. Help us be healthier. Not so that people talk about Bay Hills, but so that people talk about your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we want, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.